0: talk about ESG data, environmental, social, and governance data, as an additional layer of risk management in our portfolios. And once we take the client through that process, they start to see like, oh, this is a way of adding alpha.
1: Of the 800, the top two performing over the last five years, uh, one's got the word green in it, one's got the word sustainable in it.
2: ESG is more about leveraging big data from the individual company level and seeing if we can take that information and put it together in a framework to figure out what companies are doing better in ways that will drive performance.
3: In your portfolio, you're responsible for 27 fewer asthma attacks and 110 more homes powered by clean energy. It's our philosophical framework that if a meatpacking company is slaughtering 2 billion chickens and you own 1% of that company, then as a 1% owner, you're responsible for 1% of its activities. So if you own 1% of a company slaughtering 2 billion chickens, you're responsible for slaughtering 20 million.
4: You can define exactly what ESG means to you, individually as an investor, and then analyze your investments to see if they align with your ESG-oriented values, however you wanna define those ESG-oriented values.
1: Going to you as my advisor is helping me do what I never knew I wanted to do, but now it's all I care about, right? That's
3: exciting. What you're talking about can be thought of as shareholder democracy. Every shareholder has a voice, both to choose where they invest their money and to choose how to proxy vote. The most successful advisors have an
0: onboarding process that engages the client through conversation to bring out why they've come through the door in the first place. And if you keep that same mentality, if you integrate these conversations around values into the fact-finding process, you'll have more success.
5: The discovery process is so important here, where you ask those great open-ended questions and then shut up and listen. So often you wanna jump in there and say exactly what you think ESG investing means. Let the client define it for themselves, period, end of story.
6: Hello, and welcome to Stathis Mattel Untangling FinTech Podcast. The series which provides you the knowledge that helps you leverage technology to enhance your strategic objectives. In this episode titled Untangling ESG Investing, we will peel back the layers of ESG to uncover what it really is and how to manage it by leveraging the latest technology, how to cut through the greenwashed marketing fluff, and how to use ESG as a practice differentiator. Our guests today include accomplished executives that come into the discussion from four different perspectives. Broker-dealer advisory services management, investment product management, ESG analytics technology platform founders, and frontline ESG specialist advisor. Our hosts are Scott Stathis and Bob Mattel, and we would like to express our gratitude to the founders of your stake for their support in making today's episode possible. And now I'll turn it over to our hosts. Hello, and welcome to this
4: episode of Untangling Fintech. I am Scott Stathis, and I will be your co-host along with Bob Mattel. Today's topic is ESG investing, and we'll get into definition details in a moment. However, the driver for this discussion is the fact that ESG criteria have become an increasingly popular way for socially conscious investors to evaluate companies in which they may want to invest. So in short, ESG has become mainstream. But how do you get past the marketing-oriented window dressing and make it meaningful? ESG is a very broad concept and means different things to different investors. So how do you personalize it for clients? How should investment firms and their advisors approach, position, and manage their ESG offerings? How can ESG help you differentiate your practice? So we have an impressive and diverse panel to explore these questions with. And Bob Mattel, our co-host, will have them introduce themselves. So, Bob, you're up.
7: Well, thanks, Scott. I am Bob Mattel. I am the co-host. And let me add my welcome to our listeners as well. I'm especially excited about this discussion today. I've been reading a lot over the last year about uh, ESG, and I believe our listeners will find this to be a very timely topic and an avenue they may want to further explore after listening in. I know I have two financial advisors myself and this, the subject matter has never been approached with me. So let's meet our panel. And the easiest way to do that is through alphabetical order. Let's start with Keith.
5: Great, thanks Scott. Thanks Bob and uh, Patrick and Gabe. I appreciate you letting me join today. So my name is Keith Berger. Uh, I've spent uh, the, the past uh, 22 years uh, leading uh, one of the largest uh, annuity distribution teams at AIG and transitioning over to Luma Financial Technologies um, for the next phase. But uh, I'm excited to talk about ESG today as it's been a uh, you know, front and center concept for me for quite some time, particularly living in the mountains in Colorado. So thanks for letting me join today.
7: Uh, thanks Keith and congratulations on the new opportunity. Sean. Uh,
1: thanks, guys, and it's great to be part of the team today. Uh, Sean Meehan, I head up uh, all things advisory and financial planning at Atria Wealth Solutions. Uh, for those who don't know our organization, uh, we're a holding company of a network of six broker-dealer corporate RIAs. We've got about $98 billion of assets under administration as an organization, uh, supporting about 700 advisors through the bank and credit union channel and about 1,600 independent financial advisors across the country. Looking forward to adding some value, hopefully, in the panel, but coming at it from, from the corporate perspective and, and have a nice line of sight into what our advisors are doing, as well as working with the partners who manufacture product out there in the, in the ecosystem.
7: Thanks so much, Sean, and we appreciate you joining us today.
0: Max. Hi, everyone, and again, thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm Max Mintz. I'm a partner at Common Interests. We're an independent financial advisory firm uh, in Metuchen, New Jersey. Uh, we're a pure play, sustainable, responsible, and impact investing firm. Uh, real pleasure to be here today.
7: And thank you as well. Patrick.
0: Hi, I'm Patrick. I'm here with Gabe as well. We're
2: co-founders of yourstake.org. And um, we met as student activists focused on um, bringing responsible investment to the Yale endowment. And we started Your Stake because we're passionate about catalyzing sustainable investment revolution. And uh, happy to talk today about what that looks like.
7: Absolutely. And as you just said, co-founder, Gabe.
3: Yeah, I'm Gabe. Patrick pretty much covered it. We're uh, we're a very close pair. And I just add that I'm excited for this conversation. And our goal is to bring transparency to sustainable investing and, and resources and understanding. So I think this podcast kind of fits in within that. So I hope we can help you learn a little bit more and uh, excited for the conversation today.
7: Well, again, thank you all. And let's get right into it. And let's turn it over to Scott with our first question.
3: All
4: right. So, uh, so this is a really meaty subject. And let's, let's not assume that everybody listening knows exactly what ESG is, right? So let's, let's define it. So, so what is ESG? How does it differ from other terms like impact investing and socially responsible investing? And Patrick, if you will, kick us off in answering that question.
2: Absolutely. So newcomers to the field will see a wall of terminology, an alphabet soup. And there's a lot of nuance that's encapsulated in there. Uh, one of the big distinctions is you'll hear some people talk about social responsible investing, some people talk about ESG. Conversation is growing more and more, but when you take a term like social responsible investing, you can actually think about it in a very long view. This has been around for almost as long as finance itself. If you think back to uh, the origins of you know the pre-modern financial system in medieval Europe, for example, there were restrictions on you know money lending and what things could be financed. Christians were not allowed to do a lot of financial transactions. So you have a, a sort of purity or exclusionary approach that has actually carried forward to the modern day, whether that's with tobacco or uh, alcohol and gambling and that's sort of the crux of socially responsible investing, if you were to distinguish them. In the last 15 to 20 years, you've heard the emergence of ESG, which is taking more of a quantitative extra information approach. So socially responsible investing, you think about let's not invest in any tobacco companies, any alcohol companies. ESG is more about leveraging big data, lots of different signals from companies, from the individual company level, whether it's their policies internally or what pollution emissions they have uh, reported to the governments, and seeing if we can take that information and put it together in a framework to figure out what companies are doing better in ways that will drive forward performance, whether that's lower risk from compliance issues or disasters or outperformance of just really great quality management that's better able to adapt to changing societies and changing conditions. So that's ESG. It's really been revolutionized in the last 15 to 20 years. And in just the last 18 months, it's been growing like gangbusters, in part because of the way that the economy's changed during the pandemic has validated a lot of the performance and risk uh, planning from ESG approaches. The third piece here is impact investing. Impact investing is a really broad term, and some of these terms are used interchangeably. The origins of the term impact investing really come from the private investment space, like foundations, philanthropies, where you're concretely measuring outcomes, whether it's microfinance, the number of small businesses led by women in India, or um, clean water wells in developing countries. Um, You can count those wells, you can count the amount of clean water produced, and from the sort of blend of philanthropic and private capital, you can optimize the impact objectives as well as the financial objectives and make trade-offs. Nowadays, impact is really used as a blanket term for a lot of things. That leads to some confusion where some people are thinking private space and some people are thinking public space.
4: So so Patrick, it's um, so it's so the stuff that you just said is fascinating and it's overwhelming, right? So as, as an investor, uh, just trying to wrap your your arms around, well, how do I do that? You know, that being whatever you want to define as socially responsible investing, ESG investing. And that's what you guys are tackling uh, it, it, in a fascinating way. So Gabe, let me um, ask you a follow-on question. So as, as an investor, how do I know if my investments are truly ESG oriented, you know, down to the level of, you know, kind of company- compliance? I mean, how do you sort through all that stuff?
3: Yeah. It starts by figuring out what you actually mean by ESG. Are you looking at uh, what Patrick said and defined as ESG in terms of, uh, is a fund manager and a company trying to manage their risk or create out performance through the management of these social and environmental factors? And then you have to look at their strategy and you have to look at their track record and you have to look at how well they're incorporating this information in and actually using that to create an investment thesis. And then on the socially responsible or impact side, or really just values-based investing, what that starts with is figuring out, well, what, what are your values and figuring out what are the values of your clients? Because you're have one fund and two people and person A would think that fund is great and totally aligns with their values. And person B would be the exact opposite. So it requires not just transparency in terms of what the fund is doing or what the company is doing, but transparency in terms of what you're looking for. And then when you know what you're looking for, then uh, our opinion and, and what we try to provide at your stake as an impact reporting platform is you take these personalized values and then you take raw data about metrics that are relevant to the company, and you combine those to be able to see how well the, uh, the metrics and the performance on, on impact issues aligns with the uh, with the values that either you or the client has.
4: So, you know, we're on a podcast here and you can't see any graphics, right? Um, mm-hmm. But we are going to put some graphics in the show notes for, for this podcast on the webpage. But I, I need to at least briefly describe the value provided by the Your Stake tool because it is a diagnostic and analysis tool, an X-ray into a portfolio that is very intuitive and, and and user-friendly to the investor. And you can you can define exactly what ESG means to you individually as an investor, and then analyze your investments to see if they align with your ESG-oriented values. However, you want to define those ESG-oriented values, and we'll get more into that. But I just wanted to kind of set the groundwork for that because. You guys are at the cutting edge of providing that ESG insight directly to investors and putting the power in their hands, which is really fascinating. So, all right, so we're going to keep on peeling back layers of the, of the onion here. But Bob has another big picture question before we then dive into the details. So, Bob, go ahead.
7: Sure. Thanks, Scott. Um, and I, I can't help but think that the general label of ESG could be used to obviously attract more clients into the growth of this emerging market. Do you find that the label ESG is being taken advantage of by firms in the market? Is it being abused for marketing reasons, sort of like the all natural not being organic conversation that we always see when we go into a supermarket? Sean, what do you think?
1: Yeah, happy to jump in. And, and I, you, you nailed it on organic, right? I was actually thinking when you, were, when you said that. Um, like the term free range for, for chickens, right? I mean, what, what that really means when you, when you Google what free range is versus the, the, the guy down the road that has six chickens running around in his front yard. Um, it, it's very different when you, when you throw that one in a Google search. But, right. I mean, I, I think I bought, uh, organic gummy bears the other day and like, this, this, I mean, what I don't even know what that means, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it, you start, it, it's, it's knowing what you're actually consuming. And I think if you look at, at ESG, Is it, is it being abused for marketing reasons? I think that marketing engines of large product manufacturers are going to take advantage of whatever tools they have at their disposal and buzzwords and things to get people's attention. I think it's more to me about the end investor knowing what they're getting and, I, there has been a tremendous evolution of, of, of things labeled ESG or, you know, pre- previous to that, socially responsible. And you kind of go back down the, the there, right? I mean, to me, the first products that you saw were products that just kind of weeded out the big three, right? Alcohol, tobacco, firearms. And that was kind of step one then you kind of morphed into maybe sort of products that were built for certain religious belief systems and trying to kind of funnel that down a little bit more fun products that were built for green energy or investing in certain things. And and those were more sector specific from my perspective. And, And I think over the last few years, you've seen some really cool technology out there to help advisors get into more of the direct indexing side of the equation where the end investor can say, Yeah, it's not just alcohol, tobacco and firearms, but I don't want to invest in, you know, companies that manufacture landmines or I don't want to invest in companies that, you know, do certain things that don't align with my personal beliefs. And you can truly kind of customize those. But to me, those are, are for the most part, for the mass market are still exclusionary type investment options, right? There's a universe of things and you're saying, I don't want A, B and C, but I'm okay with this other stuff where I see kind of this headed and I, and I think the term impact is interesting on that front is, is taking it from where endowments and large institutions and people with huge buckets of money can invest to do good in the world and start to be able to bring that more towards folks that, that have to invest in collective vehicles because they only have $10,000 or $50,000, but they want to make a difference, not just invest in stuff that they don't necessarily dislike. So, is it being abused? I I think marketing engines are going to do what they do, and they're going to put that label on things. But I think as long as folks are working with an advisor that can help them really kind of peel the
7: onion back and know what they're getting into is really the important thing. I appreciate that. And I think to our listeners, I don't think they expected to hear free-range chickens in our conversation today. But that is (laughs) another perfect analogy. And And we're also recording this on Zoom, so I can see Max nodding his head up and down I know he's our feet on the street. Max, I'm sure you have some comments about this.
0: Yeah. You know, I've seen a wide variety of strategies come to market in the last decade, um, ranging from sort of like the lightest green, you know, passive strategies that are trying to just sort of chop off the bottom quartile of ESG scores but maintain index, you know, weightings relative to the the, uh, the index they're tracking. You know, those those are the types of strategies that'll typically you'll see hold the types of names that are typically excluded. You know, the tobacco names, the big oil companies, things like that. And as an advisor, it behooves me to understand my client. We have to take that conversation about KYC, know your client, up from just understanding risk tolerance, assets, net worth. You know, these types of things to incorporating uh, the next generation of their values, right? Which of those strategies are a better fit? You know, is the investor looking to exclude specific companies or are they looking for a strategy that is going to track the index, that's going to track the market and just do risk management? Those two different priorities will build two very different portfolios, both from a components, but also from a performance standpoint. It's important to acknowledge that and fit the investment to the investor
4: let me let me ask a quick follow up question to that bob um because you know one of the things that you're told is you know when you get together with your family never bring up politics because it's not going to go anywhere good but this this type of discussion with with a client max right um is is ripe for conflict if not handled well because there are so many political implications especially in this day and age of you know very heated heated debate from a political standpoint so how do you how do you manage that as an advisor I mean you don't want to alienate clients right so you have to be extremely tactful you have a lot of experience in doing that so how do you manage to avoid those confrontative or divisive political discussions when talking about ESG
0: So I think in many ways, it's no different than assessing a client's uh, financial situation. When we deal with a new client, there's baggage that they carry with them in terms of their spending habits, in terms of their debt load, in terms of whatever good or bad thing brought them through my door. And the most successful advisors have an onboarding process that asks big open-ended questions that engages the client through conversation to bring out why they've come through the door in the first place. And if you keep that same mentality, if you don't view this as a separate conversation, if you integrate these conversations around values into the fact-finding process, you'll have more success. Of course, it also helps to have a nonpartisan and nonpolitical metric rubric to be able to communicate these things things that are universal, words and phrases that engage people without delving into the swamp of negative cultural values, which is what you're referring to here. My firm has chosen to use the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals as that framework. Uh, It's a series of 17 goals that represent what we call the crisis and opportunity facing uh, our planet and the markets. And as investors, we view crisis and opportunity as two sides of the same coin. So those types of inclusive conversations, saying things that also directly relate to finance, right? So one of the words that we'll say, one of the phrases we'll use is something like, future generations depend on the decisions we make today, both from a financial standpoint, in terms of the risk and uh, investment decisions we make, but also in terms of the impact that our investments make on the world around us. So as we make decisions uh, that impact our beneficiaries, we need to talk about both sides of that equation and build a portfolio that's a good fit for you as the investor. That puts the investor in the driver's seat and makes them more willing and more able to open up about what that means to them.
4: So... um... So, <laughs> here's a, f- a follow-on question. My guess is that there are investors who knee-jerk reaction maybe don't have any interest in ESG as a as a strategy. But when you get into the types of discussions that you just described, uh, all of a sudden there are a few aha moments because once they understand some of the specificity in ESG investing. Their reaction could be, "Oh well, yeah, I definitely am interested or support that, and oh, I didn't realize that this was, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." Right. So, do you, as an advisor, experience those situations where uh, an investor has a bit of an awakening and 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 then says, "Yeah, I want to use this overlay for an, analyzing my
0: my portfolio." Is that is that fairly common? It happens constantly. Uh, in my practice, we have two types of investors that, that come to us for help. Uh, one is an investor that's found us on the internet through uh, some kind of Google search because they're looking for a specialist in sustainable investing. Uh, those conversations are great. Uh, they're very easy to have because the client comes to us with a fully formed and realized concept or 80% fully formed and realized concept of what it is they're looking to achieve. And that's when we start talking about customizing investment models to fit their values. The other type of client is somebody who's referred to us by a local CPA, uh, somebody who saw our sign on the street and walked in the office, uh, somebody who does not quite understand what we do uh, and how we do it. And those conversations go a little bit differently. That's when we start talking about the things that Patrick started with. We talk about ESG data, environmental, social, and governance data as an additional layer of risk management in our portfolios. And the models we build don't come skewed in one direction or another. They use sort of more um, generic types of screens. So we're not going to be you know, tilting towards one of the SDGs specifically. We're going to be using that framework as a lens through which we view investing. And once we take the client through that process, they start to see like, oh, this is a way of adding alpha. And everybody's looking to add alpha in their portfolios.
4: Yeah. So, the, so so they're not mutually exclusive, meaning some people are concerned if I focus on ESG, I'm not going to get the performance. They're not mutually exclusive at all. Matter of fact, sometimes they, they correlate, right? Um, so, Sean, you, you had some follow-on thoughts, and then, Bob, I want to send it back to you because I didn't mean to <laughs> to take this, this line of questioning away from you. But, Sean, go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah, as I was thinking as Max was talking, right, because the, the products have evolved, too. You go back to what was SRI. I think when products were labeled socially responsible investing, it was almost just taken for granted that they weren't going to perform as well as non-socially responsible products, and and they for the most part really didn't. I mean, they didn't do as well. Um, they were higher internal expenses, and you, then you start to wonder, well, was slapping an SRI label on something just a justification to increase the management fee by twenty percent because you, you're working a little bit harder on to manage the mutual fund, right? Um, I think the, the, this ESG notion, and when you unpack it, what it really does is it gives you the ability to put an additional lens on something to look for things that could outperform the general markets or a general fund. And I, I look at the product universe that our advisors have across the organization. Um, if you take uh, the roughly 800 separate, separately managed account solutions, and I know we're going to unpack is the label being abused? And and what's really under the hood when you peel back these portfolios? Of the 800, the top two performing over the last five years, uh, one's got the word green in it, and one's got the word sustainable in it. Now, again, the marketing, and that's the product name, but those are products that were created much more than five years ago that they've had a, a track record of, of managing. I, I think the, the proofs now kind of, there's a proof of concept now that hey, you can have a mandate that is we are going to try to do something that betters the world, that it tries to achieve a goal, and also outperform the other guys, which I think helps folks in Max's shoes because now it's not, well, you know, save the world or, or make money. <laughs> it's one or the other. Uh, you can do both if, if you've got the right, the right product suite and you've, you've got the right lens on it.
3: And Sean, i just also add that it's a really – pernicious problem in our opinion. Uh, I, I think that greenwashing is one of the top three biggest uh, issues holding back ESG investing. We've heard a lot of anecdotes and a lot of stories of people thinking that it's cool, but losing a ton of trust as soon as they see that something that's called a sustainable fund, well, their top 10 holdings are exact same as, as this non-sustainable fund. What's actually happening? What am I getting? Are you just charging me more so that you, you can make me pat myself on the back. That I think is the biggest issue with greenwashing is that it's eroding trust in the whole industry. And we think that there are a lot of people that essentially need to be able to understand, have more transparency into what's actually going on to build that trust back. And that's what we're working towards. And I'd also add, there are two ways that you can have those big issues with greenwashing from a fund side. Uh, The first is the light touch approach that we've already talked about, where Maybe you're just changing a couple of weights or tilts or excluding the worst 5% of companies for something. But I think there's also a subtler, less malicious form of, of this greenwashing, which is simply differences in values, where there's already a lot of differentiation in terms of what ESG ratings providers, what scores they're giving to particular companies. And there's no way it's, it's a literal impossibility for my values to be the exact same as what this rating agency says is the definition of ESG. I have a different ESG personality type as we sometimes like to call it. And that's something that I see a fund that doesn't align with my values. I might think that that's greenwashing. Even if there's a rigorous ESG process because it's not personally relevant to me, I might call that greenwashing or or think or be afraid that that's greenwashing. And that's another challenge that needs to be combated. It's the light touch and it's the differences in values.
7: you, You mentioned greenwashing several times. Can you just define it for our listening audience exactly what that is
3: yeah greenwashing is essentially when either a company or a fund calls itself green or sustainable or having a positive impact and it's really more marketing fluff than actual uh, real action
2: for example if an oil company puts in their sustainability report we've we've reduced uh, office waste by 73 uh, percent switching from printed paper to recycled printed paper Slow clap. You know, it's, like, it's kind of painting a misleading picture of what's actually happening at the, uh, the tar sands pit.
3: Yeah, that's actually the origin of the greenwashing term. It didn't come from funds to start with. It came from companies that would produce these uh, great sustainability reports that would share all of their progress and everything that's great that's going on. And they would, like, just like Patrick said, get at the non-important issues and highlight things that made them look good, regardless of whether that's actually core to their business.
7: Well, we brought this whole conversation full circle because I started with the definition of organic versus all natural and that really greenwashing basically covers it for ESG. So, um, So I'm going to pass it right back to Scott for our next question, unless there's anything else we missed.
4: Well, I, I I don't know. I'm craving organic gummy bears right now for some reason.
7: I want a free range chicken now. I, you know, you know I, when I heard KYC, I'm thinking KFC.
4: <laughs> so so I, um, one of the things I'd like to get into, I'm going to ask a, a, another question first, but I, I don't want to leave this hanging. One of the things I'd like to get into is, is how you can um, enable investors to see through that greenwashing stuff, specifically- with the interface that you guys at your stake have provided because what I've been amazed at in getting to know the tool is the degree to which you can keep on drilling down layer after layer after layer to get into exactly what a company is doing whether it's window dressing or reality relative to what you may be interested in as an investor Related to ESG, right? So you can see through all of that. Yeah, we're recycling paper now versus the other stuff, Patrick, that you you talked about. So let's talk about that a little bit. But but uh, but again, bef- before we drill into that, let's talk about investment styles. So. There are six types of investment styles, right? Broadly speaking, there's active management, passive management, growth investing, value investing, small cap investing, and large cap investing, right? So is ESG becoming influential enough to be added to this list of styles? Is it an investment style, Keith? Maybe you want to kick us off on that.
5: Sure, and uh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna actually not talk about um, free range chickens and 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 organic gummy bears, although I, I think that. That's going to be a whole separate podcast at some point. I was fascinated <laughs> by that. But look, I'd argue, I would argue that ESG investing isn't necessarily going to become a separate investment category, but rather it's going to permeate all of the categories and, and types of investing that you just listed. And it's really going to provide almost an overlay or, or an x-ray uh, among those different categories. And what I think is so cool about your stake is that it kind of gets back to a comment that, that Gabe had mentioned with respect to you know what uh, ESG means to a particular client. You may have a client that cares deeply about the environment, however, is a gun owner and a hunter. So it's going to be entirely different based on each individual client. It's not some amorphous definition. The beauty of your stake, is that helps you to really create kind of a bespoke or customized definition for that individual client. And then again, that can kind of X-ray through and and look at all the different buckets and different investments that a client may have in their portfolio. So um, I I just think it's, it's it's really already getting there very very quickly and, and your stake is just a beautiful tool in my opinion to help provide that extra set of eyes uh, for a client and an advisor.
4: So thanks, Keith. And and you know, uh, one of the things that uh, again since we don't have visuals here, that I think it's it's worth defining um, because you mentioned your stake is an uh, or an ESG as an overlay. Uh, is what are some of those components that you can overlay over your uh, over your investment portfolio? And Gabe and Patrick, you can you can chime in on this. But I mean, there's stuff like you know animal exploitation, bribery and corruption, CEO pay, deforestation, environmental violations, right? Women on boards, uh, air pollution, prison industry exposure. I mean, there's so much stuff. There's what's amazing is the the degree of granularity that you as an investor. Now have in your hands with with a tool like your stake, and I know Max, you probably use this uh, every day. But you know, I, I made a comment on LinkedIn this morning based on Gabe something that you posted, and and I said the, the, the beauty of uh, a tool like your stake to me is that you know when I look at, at at government, government's supposed to be a proxy for the people, right? They're supposed to act in the best interest of the people. They work for us, um, and we pay them, right? But often because of political nuances, that doesn't really happen. And, you know, government regulations become ineffective. What better than putting the power in the hands of the people to enact what they think should be happening from a regulatory standpoint, but it's not regulations. It's the power of the purse. It's, it's putting your money where your mouth is. It's giving the power to the, to the people to circumvent those often ineffectual government regulations and do it themselves. I mean, that that's beautiful, right? I mean, that, that's what's really needed these days, I think. So, and I know I'm getting philosophical, but that's kind of cool when you think about it that way. So anyway, Max, I, I want to send it back to you because you made a comment that um, you don't think ESG is an investment style at all, right? It's a, it, 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 so I'd like you to, to to dive into that a little bit, because you have some interesting viewpoints in that regard.
0: Thanks, Scott. And just full disclosure here, um, I was a philosophy major. Uh, In fact, that's sort of how Gabe Gabe and I met in the first place. Um, But uh, yeah, I don't believe that there is such a thing as ESG investing. Uh, And I'm going to get kind of pedantic about terms. I'm sorry for that. But um, what we're referring to here should really be called ESG analysis. It's a, a method of analysis that investment advisors apply to the companies that they invest in. Super simple. Right. It means it's in addition to not replacing the tools we already use. I describe myself as an old school asset allocator right? Just because we're investing in ESG screened funds, we still maintain asset allocations across asset classes and styles, right? My portfolios look like a blend of active and passive management with a core and satellite investment approach. And in that case, and that's, you know, from that perspective, I'm very similar to most of the other advisors out there. Like, I honestly think this should be pretty boring stuff, just customized to the client's values and the, their
3: investment objectives. What are they looking to achieve? yeah
4: that well said, and thank you,
3: Max. So, so Scott, you, if I you, could just jump in on that philosophical uh, thing that you were getting at earlier, that that was um, I think what you're talking about can be thought of as shareholder democracy. Every shareholder has a voice, both to choose where they invest their money and to choose how to proxy vote or, or what to do when they're invested, for example, and being more active and engaged. and, and it's really up to financial advisors in our opinion to help individuals become more active and engaged with their shareholder voice and, and participate in that shareholder democracy. So that certainly is a vision that we are building towards at your stake too.
4: Shareholder democracy. I love it. That's a, that's, that's a great way to put it and a great term. So Max, you implied in a few of your comments the importance of the discovery process. I want to hand it over to Bob, because I know Bob, you have a question you want to ask about the discovery process.
7: Absolutely. And I mentioned in the opening that uh, I have two financial advisors. One is bank-based, one is more wirehouse. What questions should my advisor ask me? What questions should advisors include in their discovery process to uncover if there are elements related to ESG that a client may want to consider when crafting an investment strategy? And for this, why don't we go to our feet on the street with Max?
0: So thanks, Bob. Um, When you hired those advisors, They asked you a whole bunch of big open-ended questions, or they should have rather, opened asked you a whole bunch of big open-ended questions about your finances, about your financial situation, about your goals, about your retirement plans, about your lifestyle, about all these types of things. And I would love to see more advisors incorporate those same kinds of big open-ended questions about values about how you think about the world. You know, do you eat meat? Are you a vegan? You know, are there types of things in your, in your life that you seek to avoid? Are there ways that you spend your money through your choices, right? Getting at that idea that Gabe was talking about, about money as voice. And how do we, you know, how do we incorporate that? What does that mean to you? It becomes a little bit more fuzzy and advisors need to get more comfortable with silence. Whenever I put the SDGs, the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals, in front of a client, and they're sort of plastered all over my office at this point so that clients see them when they walk in the door. But um, when I put the SDGs in front of a client, I make sure to stop talking. And this is kind of anathema to most advisors because we always kind of have to be the smartest person in the room. But this is a point where I am not guiding the conversation. It is up to the client to lead me. And they will often lead me into places I'm not comfortable, into places I'm not an expert. And we describe this as taking this journey together. The client's educating me, I'm educating the client, and it changes the nature of the relationship. And I think that many advisors forget we're in the relationship business. Managing money, investment products, risk management, alpha, beta, modern portfolio theory, all of these things are tools, solutions to problems. But the way we are paid, the way we are compensated, and the way our businesses run is based on relationships. And there, I cannot tell you how much I have learned about my clients and what has enabled me to serve them better and deliver more new, unique opportunities to them that they're looking for. And they thank me. Because I have done this discovery process, because I've asked them these questions, and then I've sat there and listened, and they finally feel heard.
7: Let me, um, let me ask you another question about what you just said. You said silence, and you also said that you've been in situations that are uncomfortable. Give me one of those. There's got to be a good one.
0: Oh, man, um, you know, I'll get, you know, when you start going down these roads, clients will often say, well, what about something like a biochar investment? I don't know what biochar is. <laughs> or I didn't at the point at that point. And that led me down a rabbit hole. Right. Uh, I get, you know, clients go, well, you know, I also I own these 48 acres of land in upstate New York and it's costing me a lot of money. And I'm only holding on to it because, uh, you know, the developers are sweeping in and I want to preserve this as open space. And I go, oh, my God. This is a massive planning opportunity. This is something that has, you know, really, it's a drain on your resources. You're paying, you know, 10 grand in taxes a year on this land. Your cousin owns a piece of property in the middle of it, but we got to do a conservation easement. we got to get this donated to a land trust, get you a tax write-off, you know, these types of strategies where you can explore creative outside-the-box areas. Um, And, and, you know, maybe it's outside of a public markets portfolio, but it gets you into conversations about donor-advised funds. It gets you into conversations about, you know, their charitable intent uh, and the rest of their lives. It makes your practice more holistic, and that gives you access to the rest of your clients' lives. Yeah.
2: And to jump in there about what Max was saying at the beginning about open-ended questions, we've worked with hundreds of advisors across the country, and that's actually one of the biggest ways we see these things go wrong, and advisors kind of fall flat on their face. If they have a client walk in, you know, they just sort of start talking about sustainable investment or, or put a menu of things in front of someone, like here's a carbon-free fund, here's a, a women empowerment fund, here's a, a alcohol and tobacco-free socially responsible investment fund. It's overwhelming to people and it's something that they don't really relate to. And if the person who walks in the door is not a big fan of carbon reduction because maybe they drove up in a Humvee, now you've made an assumption implicitly and they may walk out the door and you won't know why. So that's really guided the way that we've designed uh, at your stake our, uh, we have a questionnaire to help advisors with this part of the process. And we design it according to personality types, like Myers-Briggs, we call it ESG personality types, where it's just asking a series of really open-ended questions that get at those behavioral values that Max was mentioning, like, are you eating meat? Are you uh, owning a gun? Do you believe that employers should pay higher wages to people, even if that means they have to employ fewer people? We found that advisors can use that to guide a conversation, but also to kind of get people in the door. It's just sort of like a a lead generation, kind of like a a quick quiz that someone can take. And if the advisor is not really comfortable, as educated as Max about all these issues, it it could be a really big imposing fear of having these conversations that are open ended because of what Max is saying. Like if a client asks a question that comes out of left field and there's no sort of rails, then the train's off the track.
7: Exactly. And so, you know, if you're going to ask an open-ended question, you have to be prepared. And and I think that's what we're talking about here. And I know Keith has been dying to add to this. Mm -hmm.
5: No, I think, look, I think, uh, you know, Patrick and and Max bring up so many good points there. And I think the question was, was posed before we talked a little bit about the advisor maybe feeling a little bit uncomfortable in this whole discussion, especially if they're new to talking about ESG investing. But I think the discovery process is so important here. Where you ask those great open-ended, non-judgmental type questions. And then to Max's point, shut up and listen. And we all know the danger of, you know, you break down the word assumption, right? And I think we all know what that means. And, you know, so often you want to jump in there and say exactly what you think ESG investing means. And I, I would suggest that, you know, take advantage of this discovery tool. And ask those questions and let the client define it for themselves, period, end of story. And I think that's where a lot of this value comes from. It's so important.
7: Sean, you have raised your hand. Yeah, I was just, think, I was just thinking,
1: uh, as, as Keith was talking, I mean, right, Max is obviously very comfortable with this, and this is what he does, and this is his business. Um, there's a lot of advisors out there that, that this is just not in their wheelhouse, right? It's not a daily conversation they have. I've seen many people dip their toe into this space through the fact-finding process by simply just asking the their, their prospect or client, is there anything you don't want to invest in? Right? It's an open-ended question. And they might just say, no, <laughs> I'm good with whatever you tell me to do. And, you know, they, and they go about their day. But I don't, to me, that's an area where I don't know that you can get into too much trouble right? I mean, somebody may come in with a list and say, well, i never want to invest in company ABC because I have a horrible experience there as a consumer, right? Or, or I don't want to invest in this industry because I feel passionate about not having my money go to work there. But, you know, I know we use the Hummer analogy a lot, uh, but right in, I don't know, we're about 18 months away from an all-electric Hummer pretty soon here. So, and, but then you come back to the fact, well, okay, of the electricity that goes into the Hummer, 60% of it's still being made by fossil fuels. So, you're buying an electric car, you're still burning oil. Uh, and it just depends on how it gets into the car. But I, you know, that's where I, there, there's no silver bullet. There's just, there's degrees of how you can make the consumer comfortable that what they don't want to do or what they're passionate about is being reflected in their investments. If they even care to do that. Right. And Max, I, I'm, I'm sure you've got I've run into people that are super charitable, they, with the money that they're spending, they want to support their causes. They want to do certain things, but couldn't care less about investing their money with, with any sort of cost behind it. Just say, just make me as much money as you can. I really don't care how you do it. And, you know, I think that's what you have to weed out through that, that backfinding process, because I, you know, I might give every do- dollar I have to charity to the SPCA because I'm super passionate about animals, but I don't care about, if you want to invest my money in a company that does animal testing, I don't care. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that to me personally, but I mean, you know, you can't always equate those things just because somebody's passionate here doesn't mean on the other side that they're not.
0: No, Sean, that's that's not only true. That's uh, that's the end of the story of how Gabe and I met uh, actually having that exact conversation in a dark corner of Facebook. We come from a, um, a philosophical movement called uh, effective altruism, which looked at the, the impact of the money you give away. And within that movement, there's an active debate on exactly this subject. And uh, Gabe and I are both on the same side of it. So you're not going to get a lot of, uh, um, you know, <laughs> diversity of opinion here on this one. But um, there's an active debate, even within philosophy, about do we maximize the money we, uh, we make so that we can maximize the money we give away? And do we invest in things that are spe- specifically at odds with our values on the assumption that they'll perform better, which we think is wrong? Um, uh, yeah, no, that's a live conversation. And you got to have that conversation with each client.
1: Max, you just renewed my faith in the dark corner of Facebook because I always assume that's how people ended up on no-fly lists. I didn't know that was actually – people were doing
7: good in the dark corners of Facebook, so that makes me feel better.
0: Depends on the dark dark corner, Sean.
7: (laughs) And that is something else our listeners probably never thought they would hear. One thing I have promised to do after this podcast, once it's released, is I am sending this link to my two financial advisors to enlighten them and – so they, real, so they act quickly before Max takes over my business. So uh, <laughs> off to Scott.
4: <laughs> All right. Hey, I have a question, but let me make a comment before uh, I ask the question. So, so the comment is this. Uh, we have delved into the discovery process in this discussion, right? And the discovery process is too often taken for granted by the majority of advisors in our industry, especially if you look specifically at the the channel that Bob and I work in, which is Banks and Credit Unions. It is the single most important job of the advisor. That is the discovery process. And not enough advisors um, spend enough time in crafting a perfect discovery process. I come from the financial planning side of our industry, where I ran a financial planning software company. And when getting into deep discussions with our clients about increasing utilization of financial planning, I told them the, the, you know, the 80-20 rule is in play here. And they, they asked, well, what is it as it relates to financial planning? I said, 80% of the pop that you'll get from financial planning comes from 20% of the functionality, and that is the discovery process. And the more you focus on the discovery process, the better you're going to do in developing trust trusted relationships. And that's that's the name of the game. So this whole ESG discussion gives you, as an advisor, the opportunity to dramatically enhance the discovery process, dramatically increase the level of engagement with your clients, philosophically, it lets you get on the same page as them. And there's there are not that many better things to develop trust than that type of stuff, right? So, you know, the key of being an advisor and a successful advisor is to become a trusted advisor. The only way to become a trusted advisor is to do such a thorough job in your discovery process that your clients are absolutely positive that you have their best interests in mind and are acting on them. And then they give you the keys to their financial kingdom, this tool gives you an ability to, to to really layer into that discovery process in a way that's going to enhance that trusted relationship. Right. I mean, and that's invaluable. And Max, I'm assuming that's why you're a successful advisor, because that, that is exactly what you've, you know, what the leverage that
3: you have. So so good for you. Um, so Scott, so if let, I could just jump in real quick. One, yeah, yeah, sure. One Go ahead. Problem that we've found is um, uh, this is with other sustainability questionnaires. And I'm sure it would be the same thing with the risk questionnaire. Imagine going through a risk questionnaire and uh, saying, okay, it seems like you are not really a risk taker. You you want to be very conservative. That's great. But then not putting that client in a conservative portfolio. <laughs> and, and like a lot of sustainability questionnaires are designed like that. What are all the things that you care about, but then it's not linked to any action. And then what's what's even the point, what's going on? And you can't report on it. You can't, customized portfolios around it. So it's not just discovery, it's discovery with a point. And that that's what we really try to do is link this full discovery process and our questionnaire and everything that's going on to now, okay, you know, you've got someone who's a planet protector. Hey, you might want to find funds that have low toxic air pollution and you might want to discuss their fossil fuel exposure with this person because you've now discovered that this is what they care about. So I, I think that's a crucial part that surprisingly gets missed way more than it should.
4: All right, Gabe, I'm going to keep you on point here because you just gave me a perfect segue into the question I wanted to ask. So that, so that question is, if you're an advisor, how can you present information to your clients that, uh, that is intuitive? And what I mean by that is once you go through the discovery process and you understand what ESG means to your client, how can you then show the client, uh, based on what you're going to recommend, why you're making those recommendations? How can you show the client in a really intuitive way so it's not philosophical anymore, it's statistical, it's real, it's something that they can you know hold literally if you wanna print out a report, right? So how do you get down to that level if you're an advisor and you want your clients to really,
3: like I said, own that knowledge? How do you do that? Totally, let's go back to the free range chickens, why not? Um, how about saying hey, in your portfolio, you are responsible for 3,000 fewer chickens slaughtered. Um, In your portfolio, you're responsible for 27 fewer asthma attacks and 110 more homes powered by clean energy. That's the type of thing that's intuitive and makes it really simple. And we think at, at your stake, it's really important to have the full transparency so that if you do click through and say, oh, 100 more power, homes powered by clean energy, what's going on? To be able to click through and get the full transparency of where that's coming from, what companies are driving that and why, how are they doing it? So that's something that your stake provides. And with the chicken example, I'll just go back to that. How can we possibly say that you're responsible for this many more chickens or fewer chickens slaughtered or whatever's going on? It's, it's our philosophical framework that if a meat packing company is slaughtering 2 billion chickens and you own 1% of that company. Then, as a 1% owner, you're responsible for 1% of its activities. So, if you own 1% of a company slaughtering 2 billion chickens, you're responsible for slaughtering 20 million. And that kind of framework of just like if I own a dog and my dog bites another dog, that's my responsibility. We think that that responsibility framework and putting things into everyday terms that people can understand. Patrick has asthma and seeing 27 fewer asthma attacks in his portfolio resonates immediately. Those types of things are, are how we think advisors can best take these personality types and take all this data and then match those together in an intuitive way. We call those your stake metaphor metrics.
4: That's that's fascinating stuff that you can get down to that level and 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 have transparency based on the equations you're using to say 27 less asthma attacks, right? Which which is really cool. And I've seen some of those reports and they're you know, at first I didn't believe you can do it. And then I looked at the reports and I'm like, wow, they really can do it. So that's that's fascinating. Sean, you have a thought?
1: Yeah, as I was thinking about it, right, I, I think, I know thinking about the audience that, that's going to listen to this, the bank and credit union channel is 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 strongly rooted here. And I know your background, Scott. What did I hate to say, it, but one of the benefits Max has when, when somebody like me walks in as a referral, he doesn't know me from anybody in the street he can say you're not the right fit for my practice right you're just we're not going to jive this isn't going to be a long term relationship that i want um if i'm a, if i'm a member of a credit union and i walk in and i've got my proverbial bag of money and i sit down with an advisor because i meet a minimum or i have a criteria you know more or less unless i'm an absolute lunatic they kind of have to work with me and you see a credit union advisors and bank advisors that, that can't take that focus right you're talking to an independent advisor i'm just going to guess max right you, you probably have an ideal number of clients and households you want to work with and that works for your business model. When you're in a bank and credit union space, we see advisors that, that service 700, 1,000, over 1,500 households. And it's a, different, it's a different world. It's the same you know, same tools, the same hours in the day. Max is shaking his head because he never would ever want to go down that road. And I think w- w- what, what interests me about what Gabe and Patrick are saying is, too often than not, advisors and banks and credit unions won't go down this ESG path because it's really time-consuming. From a, a perception, right? If I start going down this road, I've got my portfolios built. I've got the managers that I like to use. This thing works. I can just plug people in and, and go and, and it helps me kind of get on to the next meeting. And I've got to have, you know, I've got to have all these, these client contacts throughout the day where I think what, what Gabe and Patrick are really highlighting is there's some awesome technology out there that can give you great insights without a lot of manual lift right? You see a lot of advisors in the bank trading space, they don't really want to go down the financial planning road because the perception is financial planning just takes too much time, right? I, I feel like ESG is probably getting lumped into that to some extent, where it takes time to do ESG analysis. Uh, from what Gabe was just saying, it sounds like in you know, five, 10 minutes, I can plug a, an investor's current portfolio in and show them a really simple printout. And they either look at it and say yeah, my kids suck on inhalers to get out of the house in the morning. I don't want to have any more asthma attacks. Like, that's awesome, right? And just like that, as long as you've got something that you can take it to, and I'm, I'm sure we're going down that road as part of the conversation. Um, I, I think that level of simplicity in helping advisors understand that there are really cool tools out there that that can help you not only win business, but engage in more meaningful conversations, but be able to do it with scale and not bog your business down.
4: Yeah no I you know what that's that's really well said and 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 the good news for the bank and credit union channel is that the the evolution is uh is now creating a career path where the best advisors in the channel are book based advisors what I'll call them they're not in the branches anymore and they're limiting the number of clients they work with um and their their businesses look more like Max's business so a you know fairly significant percentage of programs in banks and credit unions now have what they call second story advisors or wealth advisors, and that's the evolution so you might start as an associate advisor you know then you're a branch based advisor depending on branch traffic, but then when you get good enough because you're you're good at the discovery process and the planning process then then you're you're optimizing your book. You move out of the branches into a wealth office and you're off and running like, like Max is. So tools like your stake can help you down that career path and increase your momentum down that career path if used properly. Um, so I- I- interesting stuff. All right, uh, Keith, you had a thought, I believe?
5: Yeah, just, I mean, really briefly on that topic too. And I think Sean brings up a great and realistic point, but- Part of what's cool about the tool too is that you can literally do a bit of a light version of this conversation as well with discovery and the tools that are provided can give you kind of a cliff notes version for that client. If you want to just kind of hit a light touch, not necessarily, you know, go super deep with a client. Uh, or I guess maybe a spark notes these days. but um, you know you can, you can kind of go as deep or as light as you want. So it does not have to be a remarkably deep, long process. You can hit it pretty quickly and add a little bit of value if you just want to go you know kind of first
3: level with this as well. I'd also just add that in some sense, it's kind of counterintuitive what the simplest thing is. At first glance, you might think that uh, a, an ESG score is the simplest. Hey, you've got a portfolio. It's an 8.2 out of 10, and that is like a a quick approach that you can do. But the challenge is, even if it's the simplest upfront, uh, it doesn't really mean anything to the client. And then if anyone asks a single question, now you got to read an 80-page methodology document to be able to answer that question. So a simple score might seem appealing, but we've a lot of the clients that we work with actually started out by presenting a simple score to their clients and it didn't work for them. And, and that's why they're now working with us to make those conversations easier.
4: Well, uh, Max, I, I think you have a, a comment you want to make and I'm going to hand it to Bob, but I have a feeling you're going to, you're going to already answer the question that Bob's going to ask.
0: <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to skip through, skip through this too hard, but um, Sean, I think you said this really well. And I just want to expand on one point that, that you made inherently that needs to be made just explicit, which is that it's all about storytelling. Clients don't respond well to bar charts. They don't respond well to graphs of ESG alignment. These kinds of like ivory tower discussions about optimizing ESG scores and whatever, right? Um, those things are important to us as portfolio managers, as construction, you know, as technicians in our in our businesses. But we need to be tools that are able to show our client what makes us different and why we've chosen to work with one manager over another, right? Whether that's how those choices impacted the sustainability characteristics of the portfolio or the thing that we haven't talked about yet, which is shareholder advocacy, which is the next stage in using the power of voice to create change in the world and reporting back to clients on what that change has been. So I see this as, um, I see the biggest win during discovery as presenting a client with a choice they didn't realize they had, right? Demonstrating that we as advisors have looked into these investments and recommended both an appropriate risk return um, perspective but also in terms of what matters most to those clients, right? And I love the way Scott talked about this earlier, sort of like layers of an onion, going, diving deeper, but letting the client drive that part of the conversation saying, oh, you're, you're interested in this. Let's, let's look deeper into this one metric and then putting the client in control about where that conversation goes.
7: And, and Gabe, you just mentioned score and we really haven't talked about scoring much and score is, are an important part of the whole ESG analysis concept. Max, let's go back to you. Can you tell us a little about what ESG scores mean and how advisors know which ones to trust and which ones not to trust? Um,
0: So we got to start this conversation off by saying something kind of ugly, which is that, uh, and Gabe did allude to this earlier, but uh, ESG scoring is a dark and opaque art, which comes with some kind of nasty hidden issues. So for instance, uh, how do we decide what constitutes a good or a bad issue? What values judgments are ESG data vendors making when assigning a raw score, right? There are so many vendors now that, you know, somebody just talked about reading 200 page methodology documents. And like, that's what I thought my business was five years ago was looking at these ESG data vendors, reading through their 200 page methodology documents and like, understanding what these scores meant so that i could compete with advisors who didn't understand that and um you know while it's important to do that you know especially for funds right you got to understand the prospectus the methodology what's going on right just like for financial planners you have to understand how your monte carlo engine works right what the what a monte carlo success rate number means and how to communicate that to a client so you have to do that but um I'm gonna say something here, which I don't think you guys are gonna expect me to say, which is that I just don't trust ESG scores at all if they're written by an analyst I've never met, right? I don't know who these folks are. I don't know how they were trained, what their background is and what inherent biases, the invisible things they bring to the table. Um, there's so many studies now on how many how these biases skew the investment world 's thinking right from you know the way we deal with race and gender for portfolio managers and scoring funds and the rankings in the industry right through through long term performance numbers and how it just doesn 't match these things right that i would be I would really advise advisors to be very cautious about the methodology of any ESG vendor that applies a numeric or a letter score right. Whether that score, because like whether it's looking at like the financial materiality of these issues or values alignment, or even another metric will really dramatically change the outputs. So one of the reasons, and in, you need to know this, um, we have fired many ESG data vendors at this point. Um, I'm not allowed to name names because compliance would eat me alive. But um, the reason that we've selected your stake is that they are not employing analysts to give scores. And I never want to put one of these scores in front of my clients anymore because that is the one area where I, as a specialist in this field, have really gotten bogged down in the weeds. Because when I get this question, every time someone sees a score, they will say, "Well, what does that mean? When you're scoring an insurance carrier, right? When you're saying the AM best rating is whatever it is, you could say, well, AM best is looking at the financial you know the financial stability of the carrier, right? That's easy to say, right? When we talk about bond ratings, right? We have all the issues that came out in two thousand and eight to deal with, but it's well understood. ESG, has no regulation at this point. And the SEC is looking at it now, which I think is a really good thing, but there are there is no transparency and no consistency across the industry, which means if you choose a methodology, make sure you understand it. But I like that your stake is agnostic. I like that they're sourcing data from their stakeholders, from the people who are NGOs and nonprofits that are boots on the ground on the issue areas that they're reporting back on, and then putting me as an advisor in control of the conversation with my clients. Uh, a great example of this is around fossil fuels. That's one of the biggest things that I see in my practices, clients who want to exclude fossil fuels from their portfolios. And in conversations with your stake, one of our earliest conversations was about how do we deal with the subsidiaries of fossil fuel companies, right? There's a, there's a company, Yeah, you know, we have foss- fully fossil fuel free portfolios, but one of the funds in those portfolios owns a subsidiary of one of the oil majors that's a solar company. I'm not allowed to name names again. But um, I, use, I have that conversation with every single client in a fossil fuel-free portfolio now. We talk about this name. We bring it up. We say, wait a minute, your stake is flagging that your fossil, fossil fuel-free, and scare quotes, portfolio has some fossil fuel exposure. Where is that coming from and what does it mean? And going through that name, going through that story, right? Again, going back to storytelling enables us to have a conversation with that client. And almost every time at the end of that conversation, those are clients with pretty deeply held values, right? But at the end of those conversations, they'll say, you know, I'd never thought about it that way before. Nobody had ever asked me that question. And that's when I know I've won that relationship forever because they know that I will go deeper and it will ask them questions that, again, give them a choice they never realized they had.
2: We actually call ourselves that. We call ourselves a no-score ESG approach because, and Max said it better than we say on our own website, so maybe we'll have to take a recording of this podcast, but I'm not trying to criticize any particular scoring methodology. It's just the approach. It's you, if you have a score, you have a methodology to create the score, and that methodology will enshrine biases or particular viewpoints. And that's just the nature of how it works. Um, It's inextricable, unavoidable. So you have all this scrutiny that's becoming a really big issue. Max alluded to the SEC, they issued a risk letter a couple of weeks ago. You have two things. One, you have fund managers that are, we were talking about investment styles earlier. They're just putting ESG in their name as if it was an investment style to try and capture the fund flows as a bandwagon thing. And it's working. But the SEC is saying, hey guys, but then, if you look at the ESG scores of your funds, or if you look at the styles, you're not actually doing anything. This is a risk, Sean. You have
1: a. Uh, when you said when you said putting in your name, I was looking back. Was a year or two ago companies were just putting blockchain in their name, yeah. and they were blockchain like stock price would go. <laughs> yeah, it was a stock price would go through the roof because it had blockchain, and no one knew what blockchain was, but it sounded pretty cool. <laughs> That does get weeded out, though, right? I mean, I mean, the hope is the SEC does clean the people putting blockchain in their name out of this business, and there's a little bit more clarity. I, I I just comes back to me as of having the tool that can help you unpack why names in a portfolio because coming back to kind of the bank and credit union space, most investors that are going to go work with an advisor that's with a bank or credit union are, are largely going to be in in a, in a collect, in collective vehicle. They're going to have ETFs. They're going to have mutual funds. They're not going to see under the hood to the underlying stocks, unless somebody's opening the hood for them. They're probably not going to that place. Um, folks working with independent advisors. Yeah. There, there's might be independent advisors out there that are individually selecting individual stocks or bonds of certain companies. There's a lot more visibility into what you own when you see Walmart on your statement, right? I mean, You can debate whether Walmart's a gun company because of how many guns they sell, or they're an alcohol company because of how much alcohol they sell. But most people look at Walmart and think they're not, they're not either. When if you put them through some screens, yeah, they, they may be one of the largest gun retailers in the country, right? So uh, I think you, you, you have a little bit of thinking about bank and credit union advisors, uh, the, the packaging of what, the deliverable and the, and the investment to the client, I think, matters. And it, it's easy. To, it, you really can't hide when you're buying individual stocks and bonds because you see the names. The collective vehicle, though, does create this uh, a screen over it or a, a lens over it. It depends how dark that lens is. And the, and the investor really wants to dive into what they're actually owning. Uh, that's where I, I, I keep thinking about the, the tool that you guys have. And with, with your stake, it, to me, the, the, the more easily an advisor can help somebody understand what they own and have that transparent conversation, you know, what, whatever my goals are, right? Whatever I want to do, whatever my, my passions are, ultimately, um, if you can show me that I'm meeting them and that going to you as my advisor is helping me do what I never knew I wanted to do, but now it's all I care about, right? That's exciting. Like as an investor, right? I don't know that many people leave their financial advisor's office, like walking high, right? They're, I mean, yeah, sure. I'm on track to retire at some point, but I mean, at the end of the day, I would think if I went to meet with Max and Max, you know, I went in thinking I, am you know, saving the world, right? I'm not killing chickens. I, nobody's having asthma attacks anymore and my investments are doing good. I mean, I'm referring Max to anybody I I talk to, right? I mean, I I can't think of a better referral source than that. I mean, there's not many businesses where you have service providers in in anything I can think of where where people literally leave your office happy. And I would think that Max's clients are leaving his his office literally happy, which is, you can't put a price on that, right?
0: That's the hope, right?
4: That's good stuff. Uh, I'll just... Touch back on the the scoring. You, you can't score a philosophy. It's it, it, it's impossible, right? And that's essentially what we're talking about, right? Um, the other thing is a question for you guys: Is there such a thing as blockchain free-range chickens? Blockchain organic gummy bears? There you go. <laughs> yeah.
5: Exactly.
7: See, now we're, talking. <laughs> now
4: we're talking. You can tell it's approaching lunchtime. We keep on talking about food. All right, we're we're uh, we're at the last question, I think, Bob. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it back over to you.
7: Real quick question for Gabe and Patrick. Uh, How can advisors find comparable funds with better ESG?
3: That is actually one of the biggest, if not the biggest question that people are asking in the ESG space. How do I find that magic ESG fund, maybe low cost? That is what my client's looking for that fits into my asset allocation. And I don't think there was a very good answer. That's something that your stake is... We have recently released a new feature that helps with exactly that. And I think that's the goal and there will always be a lot of different approaches, but the basics of what's needed is to be able to, again, personalize, to be able to find out what you're actually solving for. And then from there, to be able to have an ability to compare side by side within an asset allocation or within a particular portfolio, what are the particular tweaks that you might be able to make What effects will those have on the impact and performance of your portfolio? And basically be able to test around and play around. So we've designed a solution for you to do just that. You've got your portfolio on the right-hand side. You can swap in certain things and see how that affects your, your impact. And one of the great ways that this is used is we have people that take a client's base portfolio and they load that in. And then they're able to switch around a couple things, minimize that for, for tax simplicity and, and whatever else it might be, and then be able to show, all right, here's what we did by switching these funds around. We just took all of your tobacco and fossil fuels out of your portfolio, and we reduced your discrimination violations by 86%. And now you have 13% more women on your board of directors. So being able to have those uh, the ability, the sandbox to play around, and then a way to do a simple comparison is what we've found to be the most successful starting either from an ESG model to create multiple value sleeves, or just uh, taking a client portfolio and showing how you can make it better.
2: The framework that we use to communicate this is question, diagnosis, solution. So question, what are the client's values? Number one, uh, that discovery process. Two, what's your current investment or what, what are some of the models that you could be in? And then three, how can we take your specific values, not like an analyst's values that we've never met, but your specific values and take a portfolio and swap out funds or choose different models that will best advance what you care about. And um, the difference that it can make is if someone shopping around for an advisor and talking to a couple of different advisors, maybe a little bit interested in ESG and one advisor, you walk in the door and they say, great, you're interested in ESG. I've got a portfolio for you. It's a ESG flavor. It's a 8.7 out of 10. Uh, isn't it great? BBB plus. And then you walk into another person's office, like Max's office, and the first setting is, let's listen to what you feel and what your values are. And then we'll tailor our approach to what you really care about. We find that that's a a whole elevated level of service that what Sean was saying earlier is like, that's what people walk out of the the meeting feeling happy about.
4: It it gives you as an advisor, an opportunity to significantly differentiate yourself in a commoditized market. How can you ask for more than that? Right? I mean, we, we are, if you're an advisor, you can be thought of as a commodity, and the only way out of a commoditized market is differentiation. And, and this is an opportunity to do that. So so here's what we've done today. We've uh, we've peeled back maybe three layers of the onion, and there are a lot of layers to go. So I have a feeling that this discussion will continue. I hope it does, because I've really enjoyed it. I think you guys have been great. You've 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 added some really interesting context to this whole subject of, of ESG. Bob, let me turn it over to you for some closing comments.
7: And again, thanks to our panel today. We had great conversation, tons of great information. I wrote, you know, five top takeaways. Let me just really go through them real quickly. Number one, ESG will bring your know your customer to a much higher level for sure. Um, ESG will add an additional level of risk management to your practice as well. Watch out for greenwashing. Read the label, all natural is not organic. Always be prepared before you go down the ESG path. And then and then, um, KYC, know your customer, is not only know your customer, it's know your chicken. <laughs> um, with, with that having been said, to our listeners, you don't have to go it alone. There are a lot of resources out there to guide you through the ESG analysis and opportunity, and we hope to help point you in that direction. Keith, Sean, Max, thanks so much for uh, – the conversation today. And of course, Patrick and Gabe from your state, thank you as well. To all our listeners, thank you for listening. Don't forget to sign up and uh, get our podcasts that come out all the time. Thanks so much.
4: I think the term you were looking for was subscribe, right? That is the term I was looking for.
7: Thankfully, we can edit. Thank you to all of our listeners and please subscribe to our podcasts.
6: Thank you again for joining us for this episode of Untangling Fintech. We hope you found the discussion valuable. We have provided a variety of additional information on your stake and ESG investing in the show notes for this episode, which can be found on our website, staffispartners.com. For additional information on your stake, visit yourstake.org. That's Y-O-U-R-S-T-A-K-E.org. We'd again like to thank Keith Berger, Sean Meehan, and Max Mintz for their insightful contributions. Lastly and most importantly, we want to express our sincere gratitude to Patrick Reed and Gabe Risman of Your Stake for their partnership and valuable support in the creation of this podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success and BISA Industry Trend Watch. And we hope you join us for future episodes.